Oh, guys, good, you're here. I am so excited. Guess what? Uh, I hope this isn't about your podcast again. Why? Did you finally listen to it? Yeah, it's just 15 minutes of you listing all the hats you could think of. I'm Matt Hall, and you might know me from such works as the audiobook of Matt Janssen's autobiography. But this is the BRFCS Podcast. special guest in this episode of the BRFCS podcast was born in Preston in on the 5th of November 1951, so belated birthday greetings first of all. He made a record 671 starts for Rovers and then three sub-appearances on top of that between 1969-1987. He scored 26 goals and he was a penalty taker for part of his time at Rovers with a success rate of 10 out of 12 for you stats fans. He's one of the first seven players to be inducted into the club's Hall of Fame, and it's the man universally known to all Rover supporters as Faz. Derek Fazakli, welcome to the BRFCS podcast. Thank you, and good evening. It's great to have you on board, I have to say. Uh, we were just chatting before we started recording. You are still involved in football. Uh, what capacity are you involved these days, Derek? What, what do you find yourself doing? Well, I'm still at uh, Oxford United, um, but at the end of last season, I decided that at the ripe old age of uh, sort of 69 or approaching 69, that I'd done 50 years and this was going to be my final 50th year. But when I announced to the club that, you know, it was time for me to move on, they were a little bit uh, concerned that I might not have anything to do and would I be prepared to work on a basis where I might spend a couple of days down there and still commute backwards and forwards to Lancashire. And Giving it a little bit of consideration, having such a good time down here, I thought that uh, probably that was probably the better option for me. Yeah. And so that was what I decided to do. And uh, thanks to, you know, the offer from the club to to carry on in some capacity, I now spend a little bit of time down in Oxford, uh, um, you know, helping around with the things that I uh, do in terms of a uh, little bit of the recruitment, a little bit on the training field, uh, helping mentoring the younger staff in terms of the... Um, uh, not administration staff, but the uh, analytical staff, yeah. and, and just lending my experience and my time in football and giving a little bit back to them, really. And it's quite the wealth of experience, as, as we'll get into through the conversation, I'm sure. Let's go back to the beginning then. So your, your boyhood, you're growing up in Preston. When did you first realise that you're actually quite good at that game called football and it might offer an opportunity to... Uh, to be a profession? I was fortunate. Um, I was born, born in the era where the town clubs at that particular time were, were quite strong clubs. You know, if you look back at the history of Preston North End and Blackburn Rovers and Burnley and Blackpool and Bolton, towns of similar size at that particular time, um, football clubs were quite strong football clubs. And I was brought up in the era of being a Preston fan, Tom, I mean, the Blackburn fans would remember the Ronnie Claytons and the Brian Douglases yeah. and the fans would remember the Stanley Matthews and the Bolton fans would remember the Nat Lofthouses and the Burnley fans, the uh, McElroys and people like that. But for me, it was always Preston North End and Tom Finney. 
And I had the good fortune at that early age of uh, living on a council estate, but living on a council estate, I was actually next to a farmer's field. So I had plenty of time and space and room to kick a ball about. And uh, certainly uh, from my early days, and I don't know where I got it from, um, I remember now going back years and years, and it is a few years, it's probably, I don't know, 65 years now, 66 years. The first Christmas presents that I could remember getting was a three-wheeler bike, a football, and a pair of boxing gloves. <laughs> so, Fantastic. <laughs> going back all those years, um, having a football and living next to a field gave me the opportunity to kick the ball about quite a bit. and. It certainly, probably, I'm not saying helped in my development, but it certainly didn't... Uh, didn't do any harm. As many people at Ewood Park would remember, because I very rarely kept it on the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you're doing yourself a disservice there, Derek, as I'm, I'm sure we'll get into. So when, when did you first become aware of interest from Rovers, and how did it, how did it manifest itself? I mean, I was obviously a fanatic football fan, and in the days when I was at school, I... I would sort of, uh, when I say I was at school, I'd be mid-teenager, 15, 16, 17. I mean, if Preston were playing at home, I'd go and watch Preston. If Preston were playing away and I couldn't get to the away games, I would go and watch maybe Blackburn because they were local. Southport was on the bus route. Blackpool was on the bus route. So I always found a game at weekends. But that, yeah. would, that would be after I'd played for my school on a Saturday morning. Uh, played for the local village team on a Saturday afternoon. And then um, if, of course, I didn't get selected for the village team, then I would then try and find a game of football. But certainly from the age of about probably 14 or 15, when I was playing men's football um, for the local village team, Pemberton Hill Rovers, then there was a little bit of interest from scouts, from the likes of Blackpool, from Preston, from... Uh, Berry from Blackburn, from Stoke City, because at that time, that was the way that players were picked up. They were yeah. seen playing local teams in their school teams, playing for their town team, and uh, your sort of career developed from there, and I was fortunate. I was playing, as I say, men's football, playing for the school team, and then just one day got approached by a scout who was working for Blackpool. Would you come to Squiresgate and and take part in a trial game. And of course, yeah, of course I would. And my dad ferried me to Blackpool. And then from there, I went to a game at Berry. from there on to Blackburn. But in all truth, probably Blackburn were the first team to actually offer me uh, the opportunity of a pro professional contract. And when I say a professional contract, it was an apprentice in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your job apprentice in those days was jack of all trades, master of none, because you went into the ground. You, of course, did your... Uh, daily training routine but at the end of the day when you train for the morning then you go and help the groundsmen weed the grass uh, paint the barriers uh, do all the jobs that needed to be done to keep the football stadium alive so what what was it like being in amongst professional footballers how big a jump was it from the standard that you were playing to suddenly being surrounded by because i was thinking back to who would be in the rovers team at that time and the likes of in your position alan hunter of course, went on to, to join Ipswich and Northern Ireland International. And we, I think we still had Keith Newton. I don't think he joined Everton at that point. These, these are established international players. In the, the first year that I was at Blackburn, I mean, I was privileged because um, I walked in sunny July. No, it wouldn't have been sunny. It was Blackburn. It was raining. <laughs> Blackburn having signed, having finished my exams and signed for Blackburn. Still in the dressing room was Ronnie Clayton, who was in his last year, and yeah. Brian 
and then later on we sang as you say alan hunter came from oldham and then went on to ipswich and of course for me like i was awestruck i mean it was a thing that i'd always always you know from being a very young boy like i said wanted to do wanted to become a professional footballer and I don't know how they did it, but my parents kept it from me that I'd been offered actually a contract and an apprenticeship by Blackburn um, while I was still doing my school exams. And of course, they didn't want to interfere with my education, such as it was in those days at the secondary school. And so it wasn't until I'd done my final exam, one of my four or five O-levels, as it was in those days, that uh, they said to me, oh, and by the way, you've got an opportunity to go to Blackburn and sign as an apprentice. And so I was absolutely, you know, gobsmacked and and obviously delighted to be sort of given the opportunity to, yeah. to go into football on a full-time basis. And as I say, to walk, I say walk in, knock on the dressing room door and to be asked. <laughs> Seek permission, yes. <laughs> Ronnie Clayton or Bryce Douglas or Keith Newton or Billy Wilson or, you know, Fred Else or any of the uh, senior players that you'd sort of grown up watching as a boy was an absolute amazing experience. What do you remember of your debut? Just how unreal it was. I mean, you obviously make progress through your career. I mean, from playing parks football then to playing sort of uh, junior football at a professional club and the, and the upgrading facilities that you have. Um, though I say upgrading facilities, when I played for the B team and the A team at Black, it was down at Lango in the old uh, mental hospital and they had baths in there that were the size of this living room here. <laughs> <laughs> you then went on to play at a league ground because you played at Stockport County's uh, reserve team and they played on Edgley Park. And to play on Edgley Park was like, ah, this is this is unreal. But then eventually uh, you're going to reserve team football and play on Burnham Park at uh, Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield United, Newcastle. So you're playing in all these stadiums, but of course there's very few people in. And I say very few people. In those days, reserve team football might have got, I don't know, 1,500, 2,000 people in, depending on where you were playing. Yeah, yeah. But you get to play at Old Trafford and Main Road and, and, and Anfield. And so it was... It was it was like living the dream and then of course you make progress and then you get the call one day oh you're with the first team tomorrow and that tomorrow for me was an evening game away at Hull City and I wasn't actually picked for the game I was actually picked as 13th man right. um, no substitutes in those days of course but I'm going with the first team to Hull City and we set off from Ewood on the bus, and it was fantastic. And I'm sat on the first team bus. We stopped at um, the hotel in Accrington, uh, the Duncan Hoche, yeah. for a pre-match meal. We'd only been on the bus half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> then we've got to make the rest of the journey across the Pennines before the M62. I mean, people won't remember these days. Before the M62, uh, and make our way to the game at Hull. And... I get to the stadium, I'm just there to help anybody do whatever they want to do, help the uh, physio get the kit out of the, put the kit up, hang the kit for the players and stuff like that. And then I'm there sat watching the game. And of course, people won't remember this, but I remember it. We were 2-0 down, I think it was at half time. Um, but we had a stroke of fortune. The game was abandoned at half time. The fog came down. We came out the second half and you couldn't see in front of you face and it's ironic because people who remember those days and there won't be too many people there 
whole city then had a ground that was quite modern, but it had six floodlight pylons. Yeah. I've been to a ground with six floodlight pylons before, and the floodlights actually made the fog worse. The light was just reflected back through the fog, and it actually hampered them. So the game was abandoned. It was called off. Right. And we were all in those days were probably first, second, or third in the league. And there were, I think, 25, 26,000 on that night. And I'm thinking, oh, the, the opportunity to play in this would have been absolutely fantastic. I'd never been into such a big football ground since I went to watch Preston North End in the semi-final in 1964, sort of thing, you know, yeah. Villa Park. Anyway, the game was rearranged for about a fortnight later. And in the rearranged game, I made my debut. And of course, Hull feeling a little bit aggrieved that the first game had been called off, we're out to take a vengeance. But I played, I think it was, I can't think who my centre-half partner was that day, but we ended up drawing the piece. And for me, it was incredible. Yeah. Just to, on Boothbury Park, under six floodlights, which I'd never seen before, in this incredible atmosphere, was, was incredible. Really, yeah. really give me the biggest buzz I'd ever had in my life up to that moment in time. Well, even to this day, you never forget. You know? Yeah, I was going to say, that, that is a truly a landmark moment, isn't it? We, we rescued um, a draw out of a defeat <laughs> um, from the previous you know, uh, attempt to play the game. was was fantastic. I can remember to this day, Alan Hunter must have been my, um, my centre-half partner because we actually stopped off in York coming back right. in York after the game, which was a rarity in those days. And I can remember um, being introduced to alcohol by Alan Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> a magnificent nil-nil draw. From the Rovers interview, unfortunately, we got went on to be relegated that season, but Hull City just missed out on promotion. But they had, you know, they had some good players in the side at the time. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they certainly were. So you've talk, talked about relegation then. That that season was the, the season, my first season supporting Rovers. I think I was too young truly to appreciate what relegation meant, particularly going to the third division. But what I distinctly remember from those times is Ken Furphy coming in and there being sort of like a constant revolving door of players coming and going. When that was happening, did you fear for your place? How, com how comfortable were you that you, you'd establish yourself in the side? You're always a little bit uh, uh, sort of insecure and nervous about your place until you sort of probably get into your early 20s. You know, yeah. you're all aware of the possibility, particularly with a club like, with the ambitions of, of, of Blackburn Rovers and certainly with a manager like Ken Firth and to get them back into, or to try to help them get back into the position that they come from, which was at least you know, a Division Two club, as it yeah. was at that time, uh, and so you know, and that, and I had ups and downs. There's absolutely no doubt about it, you know. But it was probably really not until Gordon Lee came to the football club and we established a really good team that sort of eventually got to that division and back up to the second division. It was in those days that you sort of felt secure and comfortable, you know, in your own position but even yeah. that uh, for the first six months of the promotion season i missed because i'd been suspended the first two games of the season for a previous demeanor the season before and the team had started playing very well and john waddington 
was playing alongside Graham Hawkins at that time, and of course I couldn't get back into the side. And I wasn't helped by the fact that Gordon said to me, listen, uh, Faz, you're going to have to play a game in the reserves to make sure that you're fit enough to get back into the team should I want to pick you. I said, okay, so where's the reserve game? It's at uh, Burnham Park. Great, don't mind playing at Burnham Park on a Saturday afternoon in front of, you know, 1,500, 2,000 spectators to prove to my manager and everybody else that I'm fit enough to go back in the team should I be needed. But of course, what happened, a young Sam Allardyce was playing that day. Well, oh, really? Defending a corner, ball comes across, he's collided into the back of me, we both ended up on the floor, I'm unconscious, I'm carried off the field, I've had two or three stitches in a head wound. But the worst thing was, the next day when I woke up, my knee was in bits and uh, what he'd done, I'd twisted my knee as I'd fallen. So I missed about three or four weeks trying to get fit from my knee injury, um, playing in the reserve game, which was to prove my fitness. Yeah. And by the team was up and running and it took me till Christmas to sort of get back my place, my place in the team. Um, but it's all part of football and growing up, you, you know, you accept probably more so today you know, when you're looking at um, quad rotation and stuff like that, then it would be, you know, not unusual to play a few games, miss a few de- games. Yeah. But in my, that was my place and I wanted my place back and you did pretty much everything you could to get your place back, you know, once you were fit to play. But uh, no, it was uh, a, a slow build up, a little bit of uncertainty, but then, of course, the knowledge that you're, a improving the play you're playing with better players you're in a successful team and it gives you the confidence that you know you need to be a professional footballer it was it was a great season that and even even though we won the league 20 years later for me that that was my first taste of success as a rovers fan and i still look back with, with great fondness at the memories from that team and one of my one of my all-time favorite games if not the all-time favorite game um, was the Plymouth one, the 5-2, where they came and, and, and took a two-goal lead. Uh, what was said at half-time? <laughs> How did the players feel when uh, Plymouth were coming onto our territory and giving us a good hiding? Right. Was it 2-0 at half-time? Or it, it might, I think it might have been 2-1 from memory. I think we might have got... We, we certainly went 2-0 down, and it was, it yeah, was we looking we, grim. We certainly went 2-0 down, and myself and Graham Hawkins looking at each other, and Graham was my base as still good a pal as I ever had in football. And I'm looking at him and he's looking at me and he's thinking, what a complete pair of absolute deal on Tuesdays we've made of ourselves here. Like, <laughs> we, we hadn't started the game particularly well. And then scored just before half-time, which made it 2-1. And you thought, oh yeah, we've got a chance. And then in the second half, we came out and absolutely steamrolled them and ended up winning 5-2. But again, at the end of the game, myself and Graham, though we were happy that we'd, you know, turned the game around and won 5-2, we're both absolutely mortified that we played like a couple of idiots at the crack and allowed them the opportunity of a two-goal lead. But of course, you know, that doesn't last long. You've probably got a midweek game coming up and stuff like that, or a game the following Saturday, and you soon get back on course. But I've never seen a pair of centre-halves come off the football field feeling so disappointed knowing that you've won 5-2. Yeah. And part of the selfishness of the game that, um, you know, you want your team to win, but you want to play well yourself. And it was disappointing to me that day that in such a high-profile game that it was, 
I hadn't managed to perform to the standard that I would have expected myself that day. But not only that, but Graham had done exactly the same thing as, as well. well. Looking on the bright side, you did in the second half. Because they had um, Paul Mariner and Billy Rafferty up front, didn't they? And Mariner went on to play for England, of course. So that, yeah. you know, they, were, they were useful players. Rafferty had been around a long time. That's in its centre-half as well. Uh, well, I was going to come on to him. We, we, we'll certainly mention him. So Gordon Lee, of course, then trots off to Newcastle, off the, off the back of the yep. success of that, and takes, um, well, one of my all-time heroes, Roger Jones, and Graham Oates with him. Uh, and then in comes this this chap called Jim Smith. So what what was he like to play for, and how did he change the style? I don't think there was so much change in style, but there was certainly a change in personnel. And I think um, from Gordon's era, where, where, where you know, he had a built up a great uh, team and a really, really good team spirit, uh, I think Jim came in. And at the time, it was becoming more and more difficult for clubs like Blackburn and Bolton and Burnley and Preston, the teams that have already, the town yeah, teams, yeah, yeah. to try and keep up with the Manchester United's, the Manchester City's, the Liverpool's, the Everton's, because then the abolition of the maximum wage of taking those clubs, you know, way, way ahead of, you know, the town teams that, that I'm talking about there. And, and so for Jim, I think he came in and taking over from Gordon, who'd been very, very successful, Jim did remarkably well because he did it with probably older players, you know, people who were coming towards the end of their playing career. But Jim could always get a tune out of, you know, people like Gordon Taylor and David Wagstaff and John Radford and, and, and mix those in with the people that had been there over a longer period of time. So on a very, very, very uh, tight budget and not a very expansive budget, he did a quite a remarkable job because I think he kept us knocking on the door of the sort of top end of the championship eventually, which was a remarkable feat for a club like Blackburn at that particular time. Yeah, you know, I think had there been playoffs then, it would have been a bit like the Don Mackay era. We, 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 I think you have seventh or eighth with, with with half a dozen games to go and able to make a challenge, but of course, yeah, it was three, three down back then. Very, very similar to, um, you know, the days when Bobby Saxton was there. You know, if, if, if there had been playoffs at that particular time, we would certainly have been knocking on the door, you know, four years out of the five, five years out of the six. In fact, I can remember going back to Ewood to get my tickets to go down to Crystal Palace to watch them in the final. Oh. And some wag in the queue recognised me. He said, oh, we never had these days when you were playing for the club. I said, no, I didn't have these days when I was playing for the club because there were no playoffs then. And if there was playoffs, I'm telling you, they, we'd have been there every other year. Sort of thing. Yeah. So for people like uh, Jim and for people like Bobby Saxton, to come and do what they did at Blackburn Rovers at the time that they did it, the limited budget that they had, absolutely, and what Gordon did and kept. Yeah, I think they, they all obviously had to work under such tremendous financial pressures. Uh, there's, there's one manager I want to talk on, then we'll, we'll come on to Bobby, and that is Howard Kendall, who did, of course, get us promoted back and almost took us straight through. And one of the photos I have in an album, because I remember, remember the day vividly, is that last game away at Bristol Rovers where we won 1-0 and then we were dependent on Preston doing us a favour. And there's a picture of you and I think Jack Cunningham in the background stood next to Howard Kendall, sort of like applauding, and your face tell, tells the story of just the abject disappointment of being so close and yet so far. What was Howard like to play for? Because he, he certainly seemed to galvanise the club. 
No, he was a fantastic man to play for and, 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 and good company and good fun. I think he had his work-life balance right. <laughs> uh, no, he was he was good, but he was also very, very strict and very disciplined in the way that, you know, he wanted you to play. And I wouldn't say we were the most attractive team in the league at that particular time. And he set out in a way to play that got the best out of everybody. And if, if that was with strength, then that's what we're going to do. And so we did that and as you say we went from having been relegated and not having a great start to the season Howard's first season there to eventually getting promoted again and then next year um well missing out as you say in the play well not in the playoffs missing out uh promotion into the first division which would have been an absolute unbelievable achievement on goal difference and it was ironic for me and disappointing for me that Swansea went up, but the team that they had to beat to go up that day yes. was Preston. Which I'm thinking, well, Preston, come on, put yourselves out, do me a favour, get a result against Swansea. But if I remember, I think Swansea won that day 3-2 at Preston yeah. and they went up with a better goal difference. Yeah, there are all sorts of rumours doing the rounds on the terraces of, of who'd scored a goal and all the rest of it. Uh, yeah. no, no internet in those days so you, you were relying on somebody with a transistor radio at the front relaying it back yeah. but it became apparent quite quickly that, that they hadn't done they hadn't kept their side of the bargain but i do recall we played preston at deepdale i think it was about a couple of weeks before the end of the season and we drew nil nil and my abiding memory of that game and i can't remember the chance but i can remember blaming marshall burke I have it in my head that there was a chance that he should have scored and he didn't and he finished nil-nil and of course, you know, if, if, but, maybe and all the rest of it. But it was a tremendous, a, a tremendous couple of years. And yeah, obviously Howard went on to bigger and better things with Everton and all the rest of it. But let's talk about Bobby Saxton because I think Bobby's one of those much underrated Rovers managers who had to really struggle just, just to get a, a decent team on the field and somehow he blended youngsters and experienced players what, what was he like as a manager? What was what was? How would you describe his style? Through the sort of my my years at Blackburn, and and you know you talk about coaching these days, and 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 the amount of coaching that people get and stuff like that. Certainly, when when I started at Blackburn in sort of 1970, you sort of pick things up probably mainly off the senior players. Yeah, and then as people like Ken Furphy came in, and and Gordon Lee, and and Jim Smith, there became a better structure to training or a different structure, let's not say better, a different structure uh, to training, which then became a little bit more manager stroke coach led as opposed to being player led um, right. learning people. And so in this era that we're talking about now, when we had people like Gordon Lee, like Howard Kendall, like Bobby Saxton, it like Jim Smith, it was it was apparent that the game was changing slightly, and and you were looking for more direction from the people above you rather than driving it yourself. And right, certainly, okay. uh, in those days, uh, people like Bobby and and Howard and, and and Jim Smith were were fantastic to learn from. And um, when Bobby came into the club, I mean, he'd come from Plymouth Argyle, which arguably, though not a bigger club historically from a catchment point of view mm. those days i can remember the season that you were talking about before when we played the game at home park and it is 2-1 or yeah, i think 2-1 i remember miscontrolling the ball and uh, somebody going through and scoring <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the, 
there was 29,000 on Home Park that night, on a Tuesday night, because you've got the, you know, the population of Devon and Cornwall probably yeah. to call on support. Yeah. Whereas you get to Blackburn and, you know, you've got the 110,000 people from Darwin and Blackburn. Our funds were very, very much limited by the size of the town until Jack obviously came onto the scene. And for people like Bobby and for Jim, it was very, very difficult. I mean, I can remember at the time, Bill Fox, you know, are we going to get paid this week? Are we going to... And they used to send the quarterly VAT return to the Inland Revenue and the Inland Revenue check to the VAT. That would buy them an extra three a day, three or four more days until the next <laughs> gate and people pay the VAT, pay, pay the Inland Revenue and get paid ourselves. So what those managers did and managing the club on the shoestring that it had was incredible and what Bobby Sutton did for six years in his reign at the club in keeping those players relatively happy tinkering with the team every year though we'd had I mean I think the record transfer fee that Bobby had was like £30,000 we spent on it might have been Jimmy Quinn so so you know, the job that they did was fantastic, you know, but obviously the way they run the football club, not only in, in terms of its its um, organisation, in terms of, yeah, bringing in players, making sure the players they were bringing in would be right for the environment that they were coming into. And yeah. that was by people like Bill Bancroft and David Brown and Bill Fox and people like that who had, you know, the... the the stewardship of the club at that particular time and they were all fantastic people for yeah. sporting environment and it was it was a great club a great club to play for fantastic it's good to hear bobby would be your last rovers manager though uh, uh and then then you you left to join chester city how, when, you, when you get into the end of the career then how, how do you know that it's time to move on or do you, do you sort of think well i'm happy here I'm, i'll wait to be told no, I mean, obviously, I was probably about 35 or 36 at that particular time. I was no longer a regular in the team. And, you know, you're looking around at what you're going to do. What do you want to do? Are you going to continue in the game? Are you looking for a career outside of football? And I certainly didn't want to work for a living. So, <laughs> Good for I've, you, yes. I've got to try and get myself a job somewhere here. I don't want to be working for a living, uh, you know, eight or nine hours a day sort of thing. So, uh, no, as I'm coming towards the end of my playing career, I've obviously got the, not obviously, but they started to set up schools of excellence around professional clubs. And Bobby yeah. was the one who said, you know, go and help out at the School of Excellence up at Darwin Vale School. Uh, we've got like 20, 13, 14, 15-year-olds looking to get a little bit of experience from people like yourselves. I said, yeah, so I did that, of course. And then as my time as a player was becoming, well, not apparently, but was, was coming to an end at Blackburn, I was obviously looking for an opportunity to stay in the game in some sort of coach capacity, player coach capacity. And I did know that um, Chester were interested in me. And it was, uh, Bobby didn't want me to go. He wanted me to stay. He thought my experience was invaluable at the club mm -hmm. and then fortunately for him he got the sack and bill fox on the day that he sacked bobby called me into the boardroom he said right you can go now but you could have knocked me over with a feather i came out of the boardroom in floods i thought oh the world's come to an end but then of course i sat down and thought about it and thought well yeah at some point you're going to have to make the break and 
I did have the opportunity to go and um, play an assistant manager stroke coach at Chester City, which prolonged my playing career um, and also gave me an opportunity to be involved in coaching at a more senior level. So it, it, it's as disappointed as I was to leave the Rovers. It, it was a stepping stone to where I wanted yeah. to be the next 10 or 15 or 20 years. Do you remember your last day walking out with your boots in the carrier bag or...? Oh yeah, like I said, I was in floods. I mean, I had to go into the office and say goodbye to the girls in the office. You know, people who I'd worked with for, well, a lifetime, what appeared a lifetime, you know. No, it was, well, I get emotional now thinking about it, stupidly I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm not surprised. I, I of think, course. Think to have spent so long in one institution, like yeah. that, and then all, all of a sudden to just be... Uh, just be discarded in that way. I mean, the, in this day and age, you probably, in those circumstances as well, you'd probably be a candidate to be uh, a caretaker manager at least, and you could have been Tony Far Tony Parks before Tony Parks was Tony Parks. Yeah, but, well, yeah, I mean, very much depends on the circumstances of the club, you know, and, and these days, they've been having you open up in the uh, in the media because there are that many media outlets and stuff yeah. like that. In those days, those sorts of positions didn't exist. You know, there yeah, was one yeah. news, there was one, no, there wasn't one TV station, there were three TV stations, BBC, BBC Two and ITV. So <laughs> these days, players come out of football and there's all sorts of media opportunities for them in those, yeah. you know, the interweb that we have now, or whatever it's called. <laughs> <laughs> those days, you know, one radio station, three TV stations. And, and so the opportunities to stay in the game and be involved in the game and do something that you're pretty much restricted to... Yeah, the, the coaching side of things, coach, yeah. Uh, or, or maybe the medical side, yeah. if you went on physio. physio or something like that, yeah. Yeah, like Mick Eaton did, didn't he? And it was where I wanted to go. It was what he wanted to do. Like I said, I didn't want to work for a living. Jesus Christ, I've never done that for a living. <laughs> so, yeah, no, so that, that, was, uh, that was, you know, a great opportunity for me and... I was very, very fortunate, and I, I don't think it had a great deal to do with me, but I'm going to take all the credit. My first game for Chester City was away at Fulham, and, and we won 5-0, so <laughs> I thought, this job's easy. Fantastic, yeah, it, it can only go one way, yeah. But you got another um, another 100 playing appearances, as you say, it prolonged your career as well, so if that, that's what you really like doing, it gave you the opportunity to, to play, and you finished, in, you finished appropriately enough in Finland, so a, fin yeah, a finish, I finish. Yeah, I I had another hundred appearances. I don't know how many I played in. Yeah, I did. I played for two and a half years at Chester, and then a few years long. Well, not a few years, a few games. Well, let, let, let's talk about you moving into into coaching, uh, particularly then with, with Newcastle. So yeah. you, you you found yourself at the start of the Premier League, so this brave new era of, of professional football working for a chap called Kevin Keegan at Newcastle United, who were, who ended up being sort of like close rivals of Rovers for a three or four year period. You, Newcastle came up the year after Rovers were promoted. How did you How did you get that job? Well, as I said, I played the two and a half years at Chester and then had a few games on loan at Bury, and then I ended up out in Finland, which finished me, as you said. <laughs> <laughs> and then I came back from Finland, Finland being the summer season. Yeah. Um, I came back in the October and within about 10 days, I got a phone call from Bobby Saxton. Right. And Bobby was the assistant manager to Jim Smith. They were both at Newcastle, two of my right. ex. And they were looking for a first team coach. And Bobby said, what are you doing? I said, well, not, nothing much. Come on, I've got something that might interest you. 
So they invited me up to um, Newcastle, look after the reserves. We've got one or two good young kids coming through. We've got a good, um, you know, academy, all this, that, and the other. I said, oh, yeah, fantastic. And then Jim said, he said, it's not going to be easy, you know. He said, uh, it's a little bit volatile up here at the moment. And, of course, at that particular time, Sir John Hall was trying to... Trying to buy the club. I had gone up on a Tuesday, and they were playing Bournemouth at home in the League Cup. And Jim said, look, go and sit in the stand, watch the game. He says, come down, we'll have a chat afterwards and I'll tell you what I'm expecting from you. I said, yeah, great. Well, I'd not been to Newcastle for probably about 18 months and I didn't realise how vociferous and how, you know, passionate the Newcastle fans could be. They weren't having a particularly good time, but they'd only just missed out on promotion the previous year. They lost in a playoff final to Charlton, I think it was. Yeah. And uh, the players ran out onto the pitch to warm up before the game and got booed <laughs> by their own support. <laughs> Man, we've done that to one or two at Rovers over the years. So yeah. We're not, we're not without sin. I mean, I'd, 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 you know, that had happened once or twice before, but it was only like nine or ten thousand at Rovers when I went yeah. to Newcastle. There were twenty. <laughs> so, no, but it was a great opportunity for me to get my foot on the coaching ladder, yeah. get back the country and I, I worked there but Jim said it's not going to be difficult and it wasn't uh, sorry so it's not going to be easy because of the political situation within the club and he was right well shortly after that Sir John Hall did get control of the club Jim had a board meeting he came out of the board meeting he said I'll be gone in a couple of weeks <laughs> in a couple of weeks he was gone <laughs> and that made life difficult for me because then they got Ozzy Ardealis in Ozzy brought his own people with him didn't really know me and so have I'm battling away with the reserves helping you know, the Lee Clarks, the Steve Watsons, the, you know, the young kids that are coming through. Yeah. And Ozzy starts to nick one from here, nick one from there. And all of a sudden, I've lost all the good young players that I had. It was giving me quite a good reputation. And I was getting the likes of Roy Aitken and Ray Ramsey, Burridge <laughs> and people like that. To go, oh, shit, this is not what I bought it. <laughs> but that didn't last long. I mean, Ozzy only lasted probably around about 12 months. And then, and then Kevin came into the club. And, and and Kevin, everybody needs a break in life. Sometimes ability is just not good enough. <laughs> and and Kevin had, had six or seven years out of football, and so he'd no backroom staff. So he came into the club, and he, he knew me because I played against him. For he'd been at Southampton, I'd been at Blackburn, played against him a couple of times from the same era. Um, and he said, "Look, I'd like you to help me with the first team." So I I. I got an opportunity purely, purely from not knowing Kevin, but being from the same era and, and yeah. him not football. Because if they'd have picked somebody from football, like Ozzy, he'd have brought somebody in with him. So I got the opportunity to work with um, Kevin with the first team. We stayed up the first three months that he was there. He accepted the job for the coming season and he kept me on the coaching staff. And from there, of course, built up a great relationship with him. Well, it was good from my point of view. I don't know about from his. You, you clearly hit it off because he took you to the England setup. Now, yeah. for, for, for yeah, with all due respect, a centre-back from Blackburn Rovers now suddenly dropped into the into the England setup. What, what was that like? How did you feel sort of like dealing with, with those kinds of players and those kinds of situations? I was fortunate in that, you know, the, 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 the time that I'd had at uh, Newcastle, we also recruited some fantastic players, you know, people yeah. like David Cole, um, uh, Philippe Albert, um, Andy Cole, 
Peter Beardsley. So you get used to mixing and yeah. working with those top-end players. Yeah. And so when I eventually did end up working with Kevin with England, I mean, of course, it's still an unbelievable position to be in, working with the David Beckhams, the Michael Owens, the Alan Shearers and people like that. It's, it wasn't as if, like, I'd just come from Chester City or I'd just come from... So I, I had, had a... Yeah, it's a bit of gradual progression. Yeah, yeah. By the progress that Newcastle made as a football club from sort of being in the lower end of Division 2 to being, well, qualifying for Europe 18 months later. So, yeah, so that was a good education. And, of course, I had five, uh, five six great years at Newcastle uh, with Kevin before I left to come back to Blackburn and then going on to be in the England setup. But, obviously, it was my relationship with Kevin um, in the... Newcastle set up that got me the England uh, uh, position at that particular time. What, what is what is Kevin Keegan like? Because to, to, to fans, he just seems there's this almost like endless ball of energy and enthusiasm. How, how authentic is that? Is he always like that? Or does, does, does he oh, human yeah. and he has down days as well? Yeah, no, he's fantastic. Absolutely um, unbelievable energy. Knowledge of the game, obviously. Had a... a, a a really good understanding of what he wanted to do and how he wanted his team to play in his image yeah and the type of player that he would need to fulfill that you know and and certainly in his recruitment of players and the people that he got around him to help him with the recruitment of players he was excellent and obviously for me i mean because he pretty much gave me carte blanche to sort of do what i needed to do to get them organized on a training field which was brilliant um, but from a management point of view, being having the ability to bring in the players that he wanted to bring in as well, having the name that he had helped him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everybody wanted to play for Kevin Keegan. You know, people that don't want to go and love. You know, who wants to go up to Newcastle? They did when Kevin was the manager. Yeah. Uh, well, he famously told Rob Lee, didn't he, that Newcastle was closer to London. Yeah, he did. Than uh, was it Middlesbrough that were after him? I can't remember at the time now. But uh, and he persuaded Rob Lee to sign. <laughs> then he looked at the map afterwards. Particularly intelligent lad and was particularly poor at geography. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. The, the, his his logic for that was: listen, you come up to Newcastle, you can be on a plane from Newcastle back to um, yeah. London in no time at all. Yeah, yeah. What Rob didn't realise there was an airport at Tees, uh, Teesside as well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that's right. No, Kevin did say to Rob Lee, yeah, he says, oh, I said, don't worry about this. I don't think he said it's near, he said it's quicker. Yes, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, that, it, that, that's true. That's T- true. Typical, typical of Kevin. And you also worked for another England manager um, via Manchester City and Leicester City in Sven Goran Eriksson, of course. What's what was he like? And because uh, there, there are all sorts of myths and legends about him as well, and being so laid back and dare I say a ladies' man. Uh, what, what were your views of working for Mister Erickson? Um, on both counts, you probably <laughs> <laughs> somewhere near that. No, he was, he was a, a fantastic man to work for. One of the nicest people. One of the most um, rewarding people who ever worked for. He was quite laid back. He wasn't a baller, a shouter, a screamer, a motivator. But if he spoke to you about football, you listened to him. And having worked for him on a couple of occasions for the time that I did work for him, you can understand why players would want to play for him. Great, 
a great manner with people, polite, uh, a real gentleman, but a genuine knowledge about the game as well. And yeah. he certainly, you know, in the time that I worked worked for him, was fantastic to work for. A really, really good guy. And and I've said this to many, many people that I don't know any member of staff that's worked for Sven and not respected and liked him. And that's very, very unusual in, in, in professional or well, in life, because there's generally somebody who, if you're a boss, somebody doesn't like you for some reason or other. But I generally don't know anybody, anybody that's got a bad word to say about him and how much they enjoyed his company and how much they enjoyed working in his presence. Of course, he, he, he was earmarked to be um, to be Rovers manager, and then he, he, he backtracked and we ended up getting Roy Hodgson instead. So it's one of those great what-ifs about what would have happened had he taken over at Rovers, but it wasn't to be, and we went down a different path, of course. Ironically, I was talking to this, uh, to a couple of the younger uh, analysts at the uh, training ground today at Oxford. They said, oh, you, you, you worked for Sven, didn't you? I said, yeah. I said, I worked for him a couple of times. I said, actually, it could have been three times because he'd actually signed a contract with Blackburn Rovers. And he was actually seen down at the training ground. Yeah. Training ground. I never saw him there then. Um, but then he got a better offer from uh, uh, Lazio, who were one of the biggest clubs in Italy at that particular moment in time. And both his children were being educated in, in Rome, by the way. Yeah. And that's he eventually turned his back on the contract at, uh, at Blackburn. But then, as you say, I came into contact with him many years later at uh, Manchester City. And then... You know, he employed me at Leicester City as well and, uh, you know, more than happy to work for him again because he was such a great guy, yeah. So just just to wind this up then, Derek, and yeah, thank you very much for your time once again. What What's your favourite Rovers memory then from that long, long career? I always categorise things, you know, because I think you have to put everything into perspective in terms of where you were. <laughs> My debut against Hull City, running out at Boothbury Park on that Tuesday night, if it was a Tuesday, I think it was a Tuesday, on that Tuesday night, and the roar of the crowd and the six floodlights was like something I'd never experienced in my life before and was really, really special. But obviously the promotion winning teams, Gordon's team was, was a great team to play for and to feel the elation of a promotion after a long, long season, the hard work that you put in, if you speak to anybody in football, they'll, they'll always remember that. Whether it's promotion from, you know, the Sunday league to the whatever league, you know, you, you remember like that and the people that you played with. And then, of course, the special nights at Ewood when we had some really good cup ties, uh, you know, the home against Manchester United on live television. I can remember playing away at Villa Park. I mean, Villa Park's probably still is one of my favourite grounds. The atmosphere that night was incredible. Yeah, I, can remember, I remember leaving school early to get down to that game to, to watch it. I thought we, we well, we played ever so well in the first. We, well, we got the, Trent the previous uh, round and then played ever so well at Ewood, but it just wasn't to be, sadly, but tremendous then, evening. We were very, very close. Uh, you know, A and beating them at Ewood and then holding them to 1-0 yeah. away. But then the big thing for me was then the following game, I'm sure, was Plymouth away and we went down to Plymouth and won 1-0. And that was massive. Having yeah. had a big book tie and got defeated, and then yeah. it was like we're back on the um, back on the track again. Yeah, back again now. That season we went up with Howard, which was you know, and again the promotion with Howard. You know, the celebrations at um, at Berry. Was oh, it? that was what a night that was. Yes, absolutely. I suppose what I should throw in as well is the promotion at 
Port Vale because I actually scored that day if I remember. <laughs> Port Vale be penalties, are it? <laughs> Port Vale, yeah. One getting sent off there after the final whistle, and Bob Lord chaired a disciplinary committee and fined me seventy-five pounds a month's wages in those days. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody Fancy. else. Had found a month's wages in the history of football up until I got fined by Bob, Bob Lord. Bob Lord, there's a name from the past. He's, he's worth a, a podcast episode all on his own. Listen, Derek, you are a club legend. I, I, I struggle to see how anyone will, will beat your appearances record for overs given the way that football is in, in this day and age. I think that's a record that will stand for many, many years. Uh, I've, I've, I think I've watched not every game that you played for overs, but certainly I started I watching... <laughs> I started watching at the time you started playing and uh, you, you were one of the constants uh, throughout my evolving Rovers fandom and it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to talk to you. So thank you so much for giving up your time and all the very best with Oxford United for the rest of the season. I had a little peep at the league table just before we came on. So fingers crossed for you that you can... Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks very much, Derek. I really appreciate that. Yes, thanks a lot. Thank you. Cheers.